Well, this morning we're continuing in Mark's Gospel, the second half of Mark's Gospel. While Jeff is out of town, he'll be back next week continuing where we left, where we leave off today. Uh, now, as much as I'd like to tell you that Jesus eases off of some of his radical demands for discipleship in the text we're looking at today in light of last week's amputation text, uh, such is not the case today. Um, we're dealt with, once again, a difficult text, um, something that is uh, only, uh, only accents further the demands of discipleship, uh, what it means to follow Jesus. So we're going to read from the text. Uh, we're going to be reading out of the ESV, Mark 10, 1 through 16. But before we do that, let's go to our God in prayer. Let me pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Pray that as we interact with them this morning, that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand them, direct our wills to obey them. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please follow along with me as I read Mark 10, 1 through 16. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the reading of the word of God. Now, I don't think it would be a stretch for me to say that most of us are probably familiar with the physiological response known as fight or flight. That is, whenever we're confronted with a situation, something that we deem as a threat to our survival, one of two responses occur. On the one hand, we could fight, assume a defensive posture and put up a fight. Or on the other hand, we could retreat and flight. Well, very often, I think that we adapt an analogous approach to Scripture, especially when we're faced with some of these more challenging passages, those that clearly and directly affront or challenge a sensitive aspect of our lives. And I suspect that for some of us, our senses are peaked right now. Maybe we're either ready to fight or flight ourselves, because understanding these words and taking Jesus at his word here is a barb to many of us. So my initial plea before we dive into the content of this passage is twofold. On the one hand, if the fight response accurately describes your bent towards this passage, my challenge is to recognize that and own that. Maybe some of you are just angry reading this passage. Recognize that, own that. 
But two, begin challenging your own assumptions on the topics that Jesus addresses both explicitly and implicitly. One of the challenges for me in approaching this text, and I guarantee you there are many, is that we all come with unique stories and circumstances that are manifold, complex, and I just can't speak to every specific person's story. Specifically on the topic of divorce and remarriage, Scripture gives us a framework for what's appropriate and what's not, for what's God-honoring and what's not. But the way our individual stories and circumstances play within that framework can often be very complex. And unfortunately, I obviously can't account for every person's story. But rather than seeing that as an opportunity or as ammunition to, de- to assume a defensive posture, I would invite you to challenge yourself on these issues if you haven't in the past and use this as an opportunity to ask yourself some hard questions, the hard questions that scripture inevitably leads us to ask ourselves. On the other hand, if the flight response characterizes your bent towards this text, where once again the tides of shame and guilt are washing over you because we're rehashing something that you would frankly prefer to forget, I would invite you to lift your drooping heads and be patient with me because there is actually incredible grace in what Christ tells us that I wouldn't want any of us to miss. And if neither of those responses characterizes where you're at, listen to me anyway because there is something that this passage speaks to all of us about. So with these initial caveats behind us, it's important as a first step, and especially as a general interpretive principle, that we understand where this text occurs on the plane of Mark's gospel, lest we lose the forest for the trees. Once again, this text falls in the second half of Mark's gospel, and the predominant thread that we've seen weave throughout the entire second half thus far is that the mission of Jesus will be accomplished through suffering and death. Three times in the span of three chapters, we saw it in Mark 8 and 9, and we're going to see it again in a few weeks in Mark 10. Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to go to Jerusalem, and while there, he's going to be handed over to be crucified on a cross. And in that way, there is something paradoxical about Jesus's mission and the movement of the kingdom of God. For instance, Jeff touched several weeks back on the theme of greatness in the kingdom of God and how greatness is paradoxical because the one who would be great is a servant of all. That's not the way we typically approach or think about greatness. And now in our text, Jesus presses the countercultural implications of the kingdom of God into issues of marriage and children. And unfortunately, we're not going to let up in the next few weeks because then he talks about possessions and wealth into areas that we might prefer not that Jesus have a hold on. What we find especially, though, in the second half of Mark's gospel is that the kingdom of God leaves no stone unturned because the call to discipleship is a call to continually challenge, examine, and if necessary, change those parts of our lives where we might be walking lock and step with cultural norms, but not with Jesus. And in that sense, this is especially the problem with the Pharisees and the disciples in our text, They're approaching Jesus with the ingrained cultural norms of the day, and Jesus challenges them on it. What we'll see shortly is that the Pharisees, when they come to Jesus, they come to Jesus with the common Jewish assumption of the day that if a man wanted to divorce his wife, if he wanted to send his wife out, he could do that. Some maintained a man could do so for virtually any reason. Others narrowed that down to specific criteria. It all depended on how one interpreted Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. We'll talk about that text in a few moments. That's the text that the Pharisees cite to Jesus. But Jesus' response to the Pharisees gets beneath the surface of their tacit approval for divorce, and he challenges the very idea itself. 
And then when parents are bringing their children to Jesus in verses 13 through 16, the disciples act in the words of one commentator like truculent bouncers, like that imagery. Children in the ancient world, you see, had no status. The romanticized notion of children that we have today of their innocence and their adorableness is actually more of a modern invention and it's quite foreign to the world of the New Testament. Children in the ancient worldview They brought little or nothing to the table, and their worth was determined accordingly. So the disciples, like the Pharisees, are walking lock in step with the ingrained cultural norms of the day, and Jesus challenges both of them. And in the process, he challenges some of our assumptions too. So my thesis this morning is this. Jesus shows us that the kingdom of God informs and transforms our approach, both individually and as a church, to some of the most intimate relationships of life by challenging us on two issues specifically, challenging us on the scope and context for intimacy and the fight to uphold dignity. And we'll explain each of those, of course, in turn. So first, Jesus challenges us by outlining the scope and context for intimacy. Let me begin by setting the scene for us. Jesus and his disciples are journeying towards Jerusalem as they are starting in the second half of Mark's gospel when the second half launches in Mark 8. From that point on, Jesus and the disciples are going towards Jerusalem. They have that goal in mind to go towards Jerusalem. And at this point, they're probably in the territory governed by Herod Antipas, a semi-Jewish puppet king who was ultimately under Roman authority. Now, earlier in Mark's gospel, we learned a little something about Herod Antipas, didn't we? We learned in Mark 6 that John the Baptist publicly challenged the marriage of Herod Antipas to his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. John was claiming that the marriage was unlawful. And because John touched on a sensitive topic, he was arrested and eventually beheaded. Hopefully you don't do that to me today. So the Pharisees aren't raising the issue of marriage and divorce arbitrarily. When they ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, they're conspiring together around a politically charged topic in an open public forum. But Jesus doesn't retreat from the question, even though their intent surely hasn't gone unnoticed. Instead, Jesus responds in this typical fashion by asking them a question of his own. What did Moses command you? In other words, if you really want to know what's lawful and what's unlawful, if you really want to know what's God-honoring and what's not, let's get rid of these Pharisaic squabbles, let's forget about the oral law, and let's go centrally to what the scriptures have to say about the matter. And let me give a quick aside since we're jumping into a difficult, emotionally charged issue. In whatever topics or issues we're addressing as Christians, we need to fight, and it really is a fight, to continually submit our views from our most fundamental beliefs to even our most basic practices to the scriptures. The lordship of Jesus Christ demands no less than that. I like what uh, New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger writes on this. He says, quote, as with all debated biblical doctrines, It is all too easy to craft one's view of divorce and remarriage in light of past experiences, personal emotions, or with pragmatic intentions. Given the pressing nature of divorce and remarriage in contemporary culture, believers ought to take special care to make sure that their respective views are shaped by the biblical text. Seeking to avoid common errors such as confusing stringency with holiness or permissiveness with grace. 
So moving back to our text, the Pharisees respond to Jesus' inquiry, and the immediate text they cite is Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Now, I'm not going to read from that text. We're not going to look at that text directly. But the basic premise of that text is reflected in the Pharisees' response. According to Deuteronomy 24, if a man took a wife and he found, quote, some indecency in her, he could write a certificate of divorce, send her away, and she was then free to marry another man. Now, during the first century, there was a raging rabbinic debate over what that phrase, some indecency, meant. I assume you all are just confounded with the, the rabbinic debates of the day. But nevertheless, it was taken for granted in the rabbinic debate that a man could divorce his wife, and in some cases, that he should divorce his wife. But there's a problem here in the Pharisees' answer by quoting Deuteronomy 24. It's a relatively incomplete answer. Jesus asked the Pharisees initially, what did Moses command you? And the Pharisees answered more or less what Moses allowed. We're going to talk about Matthew 19 in a moment. Matthew 19 is the parallel account to Mark 10, 1 through 12. And in that text, that's the language that's used. Jesus says Moses allowed, or God allowed that. Moses allowed that. You see, it's not that the Pharisees were necessarily wrong in their answer, but according to Jesus, the regulation in Deuteronomy 24 was centrally a stopgap that was designed to mitigate and regulate a divorce practice which in its day was running rampant. Jesus himself says that it was because of your hardness of heart. It was because of the entrance of sin into the world that this practice just has to be regulated at the outset. Instead, if one wants to know not what God issued as a concession, but what his original intent for marriage was, According to Jesus, one needs to return to the beginning, to the first book of Moses, to Genesis, and learn what the original intent for marriage was, and as a corollary, what the original intent for intimacy was. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He takes the disciples back to Genesis, back to the garden, to remind his audience what God originally intended for marriage. He appeals in this uh, quotation to Genesis 2.24. And Jesus tells us in short that marriage was originally intended to be, first of all, an indissoluble permanent bond between one man and one woman. And second, the only proper context for sexual intimacy. That's what those phrases, one flesh and joined together, connote. Now, we'll come back to the issue of divorce in a second, but when Jesus paints this ideal of marriage as oneness that's expressed in part through sexual intimacy, by implication, right out of the gate, intimacy outside of that context, whether it be cohabitation, whether it be casual sex, and so forth, are ruled out as God-honoring expressions of oneness. The only difference between divorce as a severing of that oneness and any other form of sexual intimacy outside of marriage as a distortion of oneness is that not all divorces are unbiblical. But before we outline what Jesus and what the scriptures say centrally about divorce, our starting point has to be one where, like Jesus, marriage is rooted in creation and thus divorce is seen as something that falls short of God's creation ideal. In scripture, it's always framed as a concession due to sin, and that's tragic. 
However, once we establish that as the starting point, Scripture does qualify divorce and remarriage in a few significant ways, in two specific ways in particular. So let's look and see what the rest of the New Testament has to say real briefly about divorce and remarriage. Don't often do this. I don't often give different interpretations and different views on things, but I think it's incumbent upon us based on this issue to do so. So first, in the parallel account in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 19, 1 through 12, Matthew includes for us slightly more of what Jesus has to say. In Matthew 19, 9, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, as you can imagine, that exception clause, as it's typically referred to, which doesn't occur in Mark, it only occurs in Matthew, has received a lot of attention in the history of interpretation. What exactly does Jesus mean when he says that? Without elaborating on all of the arguments, there are basically three of them, some have argued that this exception clause teaches that neither divorce nor remarriage are allowed by Jesus, and that it actually refers to something in the Jewish Jewish betrothal period. So if you think, for instance, of Joseph and Mary and the situation there, when Joseph or when Mary became pregnant and Joseph hadn't had his dream yet, he assumed that it it was infidelity of some sort in the betrothal period. He resolved to divorce Mary quietly as a righteous man. So some commentators will say that the exception clause really only refers to that betrothal period, which we as contemporary readers don't really have anymore. That's an argument. I don't think it's a very good argument. Second, some have argued that divorce is allowed, but not remarriage. So that's actually the prevailing early church consensus leading up to 1600. Again, has some merits, but I think it falls short of what Jesus is getting at here. The best interpretation seems to be that Jesus, through the exception clause, allows for both divorce and remarriage for the offended party in the case of marital infidelity. And that's the view propounded in our Westminster Confession of Faith, if you're curious about that. Second, if we look outside of the Synoptic Gospels, outside of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those collectively are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels, we also find something in Paul. Paul tells us something about divorce and remarriage in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, again, without going into all the details, Paul tells us that the desertion of a spouse, specifically in the context where an unbelieving spouse deserts a believing spouse, where attempts at reconciliation have failed, divorce and remarriage are also permissible. But outside of that basic framework, I'm sure we still all have various questions that we're bringing to the table. How do our specific stories, maybe you're asking, how does my specific story apply to those two exceptions or those two stipulations? Well, at the very least, we want to encourage anyone who has specific questions about your own situation or the situation of a family member or a friend and so forth to process these questions in community, process these questions with our elders or with one of our pastors. The proliferation of no-fault divorce in our culture illustrates that we are far too prone to go the route of divorce without any biblical warrant whatsoever. So our plea is don't go down that path of divorce autonomously. Do it in community. But in the meantime, as we approach the difficult issue of marriage and divorce specifically, or even the issue of intimacy more broadly, I think we need to challenge ourselves on our very approach. See, when the Pharisees approach Jesus, their question isn't necessarily bad, but their question does reveal something about their heart, reveal something about their fundamental approach to the topic. The Pharisees essentially want to know, where is the line? 
They want to know what a Jewish male can get away with. No concern, it seems to be, for the female. Kevin DeYoung, pastor in uh, North Carolina, puts it like this. He says, the Pharisees want to talk about acceptable reasons for a divorce. Jesus wants to talk about the sanctity of marriage. They want to talk about when a marriage can be broken. He wants to talk about why marriages shouldn't be broken. If all you hear are the reasons a marriage covenant might be broken, it's like learning to fly by practicing your crash landings or training for battle by practicing your retreats. Whatever exceptions there might be, the main thing is that marriage is supposed to be permanent. So when we approach these issues, what questions are we fundamentally asking ourselves? Some of you know I worked in college ministry for a number of years, and without a doubt, one of the primary questions I would be asked by students who were in dating relationships was, where's the line? How far can I get up to this line with my boyfriend or girlfriend without crossing that line? Well, friends, let me suggest that if we're primarily asking ourselves negative questions, what needs to happen for me to call this marriage quits, for instance, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Let me suggest instead that we see the marriage relationship and the intimacy that should be exclusive to the marriage relationship positively as a beautiful portrait and a reflection of the oneness that Christ has with his church. You see, friends, this wasn't a oneness that Christ pursued begrudgingly. It was a oneness that Christ died for, a oneness that Christ went to the cross for. And in the context of Mark, in the context of this very difficult passage we're reading this morning, Jesus is on his way with his disciples to the cross to suffer and die for the sake of the oneness of the church. Listen to how, for, how Paul frames it in Ephesians 5 in the context of marriage. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ pursued the church, his bride. He gave himself up for her. If marriage is meant to reflect this divine reality, then it's incumbent upon us as much as possible to fight for oneness in our marriage and to eschew any distortions of oneness, which includes for the married that our approach to life cannot be an individualistic endeavor. Because marriage binds us in a new oneness, we can't pretend that we are any longer our own. And it also means, to quote Paul Tripp here, who says protection of marriage and defense against unbiblical divorce is rooted in the worship of God. Outside of that context, outside of the worship of God, longevity in marriage simply suffers. Well, this leads to our second point. Second, Jesus challenges us both individually and as a church to uphold dignity. And what I mean specifically here is that we as a church have a calling and a very important calling to uphold the dignity of those people we might be more prone to marginalize. First, look with me, if you would, at the second part of this text, at verses 13 through 16. Now, we noted earlier that children in the ancient world had no status, and they were very often viewed as less important members of society. This was true both in the Greco-Roman world, and it was also true in the Jewish world. 
In fact, in the Greco-Roman world, there's evidence that children could be cast away at birth and abandoned if they were too much of a financial strain. That might be one of the reasons why one of the earliest Christian documents, the Didache, talks about probation specifically for the church for abortion and infanticide. It prohibited that directly, probably because of the prevailing cultural consensus of the day. So Jesus' invitation to the weakest and most vulnerable members of society, children, highlights the fact that children are not second-class citizens. They don't have to earn dignity and worth. They have it from the moment of conception as image bearers. And one of the reasons I love, personally, the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition is that our emphasis on the covenant reinforces that our children bring incredible value and worth to our families and also to our church. But I suspect that although there's always room for us to be introspective individually and introspective as a church, this probably doesn't strike us as very challenging. In fact, I bet a lot of us, when we're reading verses 13 through 16, we really like what Jesus has to say there. That really, we, that's something we could all rally around and say, yahoo, towards, if I may. But of course, we shouldn't stop there. Because Jesus is pressing home something that goes beyond just children. And that is, we need to fight to uphold the dignity of all people the church might be more prone to marginalize. Let's think about this, for instance, in light of divorce and remarriage. The reality of divorce and remarriage in the church is such that it happens. Divorce and remarriage happens. And what we would consider unbiblical divorce and remarriage happens. And since we talked above about the ideal of intimacy, sexual sin of all sorts is prevalent in the church today. The reality is that the church falls far short of what God's ideal is for marriage and the intimacy that should be exclusive to the marriage relationship. But moving forward as a church in the wake of failures and repentance, how do we minister the gospel in those circumstances? Now, I'm not talking, of course, about neglecting church discipline in the circumstances where church discipline is called for. Don't freak out, elders. But even our book of church order talks about the goal of church discipline is what? It's restoration. So how do we approach people in the church whose moral or marital failures might be plain to all of us? You see, throughout this entire passage, even as Jesus upholds the oneness that should perpetually characterize marriage, and so should we, Jesus also has an eye for the broken and the vulnerable. It comes through, as we just said, in his comments on children, but it also comes through in his elevation of the status of women. Commentators note that in Israel, even in the first century, a man was only considered an adulterer when he had an extramarital relationship with a woman who was married. And even then, his adultery wasn't against the woman's husband, or what the adultery was against the woman's husband, it wasn't against his own wife. But if a woman did the same, she was considered an adulterer against her own husband. So Jesus' comments, it's subtle, but it's important, in verses 11 and 12, set both the man and the woman on equal playing field. And in light of first century Judaism, Jesus' words specifically elevate the status of the wife. So even Jesus' recasting of divorce through the lens of permanence in Genesis 2.24, that's also a way in part of securing the protection of the wife. So we see that Jesus' comments on divorce and remarriage and children include in them a thoroughgoing affirmation that both men, women, and children are image bearers whose dignity we as a church need to fight to uphold. So what does that look like then? 
for us as a church to functionally affirm the dignity of those we might be more prone to marginalize. Again, we're not talking about substituting church discipline when it's called for, nor are we talking about softening our convictions on what's sin and what's not. But what are some of the challenges we as a church face in maintaining oneness, and who are those we're more prone to marginalize as it relates to the topic we're addressing? Well, first, based on the basic framework for what is and what isn't a biblical divorce and remarriage, maybe there are some of you sitting here right now who are reaching the conclusion or who have reached the conclusion that your own divorce and remarriage was unbiblical or that the divorce and remarriage of your parents or of your friends or coworkers, and the list could go on and on, was unbiblical. What do you do with that? Well, if that describes you, please understand There's tremendous grace and forgiveness in the gospel. Christ, by grace, through faith, you have been united to Christ so that what is true of him is true of you. It's not, as one commentator says, the unpardonable sin. So remain as you are if that describes you and fight for the marriage that you have now. And for us as the church, I think something that New Testament commentator David Garland writes is absolutely correct. He says, quote, any moral superiority that the undivorced, for instance, might feel towards the divorced who remarry is undermined by Jesus' claim that everyone who lusts after another is guilty of adultery. See, pride kills oneness. Church, don't let pride blind us to Jesus' vision for the oneness of the church. It's devastating. Second, Since we're speaking of those who the church has an unfortunate tendency of marginalizing, particularly as it relates to the most intimate relationships of life, I also want to make sure that we highlight another group, and that is the singles. It's been said before that those who are single are one of the most marginalized groups in the church. The church, including our own, needs to heed the challenge that the way we pursue relationships with one another and the way we minister among one another doesn't give the impression to our single saints that they don't have value unless they're married. And friends, we could go on and on, talk about the various groups in the church that we need to fight to uphold their dignity, fight to uphold oneness among all of us. And we do that in light of Jeff's sermon last week by seizing our words with salt by thinking before we speak, by ensuring that our ministries don't unwittingly exclude people and the list could go on and on. But fundamentally, it means that we check our own hearts, that each of us adopt a posture of humility towards our brothers and sisters. I think it's fitting that Jesus concludes this text and we conclude this sermon by taking stock of his words at the end where he calls everyone who would follow after him to assume a childlike posture. Now, of course, that doesn't mean a posture of immaturity like a child, but rather a posture of obedience, humility, and trust. It means first that we sit at the feet of Jesus under the authority of scripture, that we take Jesus at his word, even when everything in us from a cultural standpoint says that doesn't, that just seems radical to me. It means that we stand in awe that the oneness Jesus calls his church to is actually set on the much larger canvas of how Jesus pursued covenantal oneness with his church and gave himself up for her. That should lead us, friends, to worship and for the gospel to wash over us and to change the way we approach these sensitive and difficult topics. But it also means, too, that we assume a humble approach, knowing that like a child, we in ourselves are weak, 
that we need grace from outside of ourselves. And it's only until we assume a posture like that as individuals and as a church do we have any hope of reflecting the oneness that's central to marriage, central to dynamics of church life, central even to the gospel itself. That's what's involved with oneness. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We know that when we read it, we encounter in many ways difficult things to hear, things that very often run so countercultural to what we've been exposed to. And so, Lord, I pray that if there are those among us who are just angry right now or who are confused or even those who are hurting, Lord, that we as a church would do a good job surrounding them and ministering to them and loving them, that they would be honest enough to come to us and to talk to us about these issues, and that all of us, in all of our relationships with one another, would pursue oneness by pointing each other to the gospel, to pointing each other to the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's the gospel that we stand upon. It's the gospel that roots us. And I pray that we would be a people who fall in love with the gospel, who fall in love with the God of the gospel every day we live, move, and have our being. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.